Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. In this episode, Satyan sits down with Ido Liberty, CEO of Pinecone, the managed database for large-scale vector search. Previously, Ido led Amazon AI Labs and created platforms like SageMaker and Recognition. During his time at Yahoo, he built machine learning platforms to improve applications for search, security, and media recommendation. Ido and Satyan give a crash course on vector databases, what they are, who needs them, how they will evolve, and what role AI plays. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. We bring relief to a world of garbage in, garbage out with enterprise data solutions that deliver intelligence in, intelligence out. Learn how we fuel success in self-service analytics, data governance, and cloud data migration at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Today on Data Radicals, we're joined by Ido Liberty, founder and CEO of Pinecone. Prior to Pinecone, Ido was a director of research at AWS and head of Amazon AI Labs, where he built groundbreaking ML algorithms, systems, and services. He also served as Yahoo's senior research director and led the research lab, building horizontal ML platforms and improving applications. Ido received his BSc in physics and computer science from Tel Aviv University and his PhD in computer science from Yale. After that, he was a postdoc fellow at Yale in the program in applied math. He is the author of more than 75 academic papers and patents about machine learning systems and optimization. That's all super impressive. And thank you for joining Data Radicals. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rhett. So I'd like to just start with the very basics. Pinecone describes itself as delivering a fully managed vector database. Can we start like super elementary? What is a vector? A great question. So a vector is a an array of numbers, right? So in, in you studied physics or math, like you think about a vector as something with a direction and a magnitude. The easiest way to represent that in like 2D is just two numbers, right? It's just the tip of the arrow you've done like geometry. So this is like an X, Y axis. A vector could be represented by two numbers in two dimensions. In a thousand dimensions, a vector is a thousand numbers, right? But the numbers have an order. So it's X, Y, X, Y, Z, so on. So that sounds very abstract about why would I care about these vectors in a thousand dimensions. And so it happens that large language models and all foundational models represent basically all data in this numerical form. It's an array of numbers out of which that somehow captures the essence and the meaning of objects, whether they're text or or images or audio. And that representation seems to be a lot more actionable for those foundational models to represent data, retrieve data, and work with it. And that's it. And of course, with with the rise of foundational models, this format uh, and this data type became extremely common. Is there a reason why that's the case, why vectors are more naturally suited to representing a language or a format that these models can understand? Yeah. So, you know, we humans and in general, AI doesn't really work with exact matches and should like filters and SQL queries and other kinds of modes of accessing data because that doesn't apply to like soft, natural data. When you see somebody, you've never seen them exactly, somebody you know, I mean, you've never seen them in that lighting. They might be wearing a new hat whatever, that you might see them against a different backdrop. The image itself is very different, but somehow your brain is able to go and fetch that person's name, right? Because now you searched 
your database of faces to find your friend's face, right? And so it's not an exact match. It's a similarity search. It's something, what is like that? Same thing happens in language. When I ask you a question about how a catalytic converter works, right? You know it's about cars. You start to search, like, what about you? You know it's about cars. <laughs> I don't know anything about catalytic converters, by the way. But you might know that you don't know anything about it because you know the topic and you know how to search in the vicinity of knowledge of that type, right? And so this kind of search and access by analogy, by similarity, by alignment, by connotation is what vector databases are really, really good at and what foundational models need to be able to operate well, rather than exact matches on filters or SQL queries or fetches of, of, of specific records, which is how pretty much all databases work. Other databases. And so then would it be fair to presume or extend that a vector database is a database that's optimized for the storage and retrieval of vectors? 100%. And the question is not only storage and retrieval, but the question is retrieve by what? It's not just give me vector number 726. It's really just about give me something, give me all the vectors or all the data points that are aligned with this data point that are close to it, that resemble it, that are similar to it, right? And that kind of query is extremely highly optimized in vector databases. In fact, the whole database is designed to be able to do that efficiently so that in real time you can, say, do question answering by reading a question. And then the first thing you do is like, hey, wait a second. First, let's fetch all the documents that contain information that is relevant to the answer, right? And then try to answer the question instead of try immediately to answer. How does a vector database get produced? I mean, how does it get populated in the first place? What does one have to do to put information into it? So the vector database itself is a very foundational layer. It doesn't speak the language of text and audio and video and so on. Foundational models that exist today as, as API calls, really, the, the managed services are great companies that support them. They already take data and vectorize it. Okay, so that means I'll take a text document or I'll take a sentence and I'll ask for an embedding, right? Our companies like AI21 and Cohere and Hugging Face and OpenAI and, and others uh, all have great models for embedding text, for embedding images, for embedding composite items. That puts the items in what's called vector space. You give, take text, you get back a vector, and that vector is put, being put into. Same thing at query time. You take a query, you vectorize it, and you search uh, in Pinecon for the relevant information. And so is all of the information or all of the, I guess, purported knowledge that exists in a foundational mo model essentially vectorized into a vector database? I mean, is that essentially, is it a container for that information? Yes, that's a great way to think about it. And not, and not only that, it's it's the way to do it in inside companies, inside corporations, where your data is very sensitive in your data. You don't want to retrain the models. You don't want to make the models very dynamic. You just put the knowledge that the model uses next to it in a database that you control, and then you can be both very knowledgeable on the kind of foundational model being knowledgeable, but also have full control over your data, governance of it, and so on. And are the underlying vector databases hard bound to the foundational model, which effectively populated them or represented the information in the first place? Is there any sort of swappability of the knowledge? No, I think it's a fairly tight, not fairly tight. It is a tight mapping between right. if you use a specific model to embed your data, then that is the model you should keep using for embedding. 
data into this specific index. Of course, you might have different indexes, different models, but yes. Because on some level, it's an understanding of how you, the, the model in some sense has produced a representation that is accessible to it. But, you know, on, on some level, the re- it only understands its own, its own language. In many ways, the model, the embedding model is like the ETL into the vector database. If you swap the ETL, yeah, I mean, of course, the whole schema changes. Like for the regular database, you can't just swap the ETL for another ETL and that would keep working. Right? It's the same thing. Yeah, although in a relational database, of course, the knowledge representation is discrete. The catalog effectively gives you some understanding, or the schemas really give you some fundamental understanding of what data is inside it. So, you know, first name tells you that, oh, this is a list of first names. In some sense, the index, as it were, the way to be able to understand and look up the information is actually contained in the model, which is outside or external to the underlying database. Or is that wrong? I I think it's still kind of matches. Think about the schema is like just a dimensional, like just dimension of the vector. Like you need some mm. number of loads for this to fit in the index. But the meaning could be different, right? I mean, I can have a table with a name and an age. And for in one thing that is about, I don't know, humans and the other one it's about cheeses. And that would like the data would just become complete garbage, even though like the table bought whatever the schema is respected. You can't just replace the source and the meaning of data, even though you conform the structure. It's the same thing as here. I mean, you can conform yeah. the structure and replace the model, and then whatever, you get some mix of, of two data sources that would, wouldn't play nice in it. Yeah, I guess on some level, the metadata in a, in a relational database would tell you that, uh, oh, this table is about the age of cheeses versus this one being about the age of people. There is no such sort of inherent self-describability that comes with the underlying vector database, if I'm understanding your description correctly. Yeah. I mean, look, just talking about a collection of vectors, vector databases are much more complex. You have metadata yeah. and you have like other fields and so on. I mean, it's really a much more complicated object. But So you can encode all that. All I'm saying is if you swap the model with a different model midstream, you might garble, like you might become unoperatable. Yeah, for sure. You're, you're like sure. if you just, just arbitrarily just took any <laughs> rando ETL and just wrote it into a, any arbitrary set of tables, sure. you would come up with garbage. And in that sense, it would be garbage and garbage out. I think we're making two different points. I think what you're saying is, look, you one needs to understand what it's talking to in order to talk to it, which is obviously correct. I think the point that I'm observing is slightly different, which is one can look at a, if you had the appropriate metadata, you could understand what's inside of a relational database by just simply knowing the metadata and what's inside of it. That is That same property doesn't exist for a vector database, I guess. Like you don't know what those vectors represent. Not, not easily, no, not yeah. easily. Which is, I think, part of what's so interesting, the, people call it vector search, or another way of referring to it is vector search. It, it, is it more helpful for think, people to think about vector databases as a form of search engine, or, or how do you describe yeah. it? It's very often it's very often used as a search engine, and so thinking about it as a search engine, it's, it's a very uh, AI native search engine is is not a bad way to think about it. Yeah, and so one yeah. who who uses a vector database? I presume it's somebody who wants to augment the information from a foundational model, essentially, or augment what a foundational model knows. Is that broadly the case? Not only, in fact. We started building Pinecone well before the explosion of foundational models. So the the use cases are much more broad. As a whole, like you like you indicated yourself, search and semantic search, the ability to really search for things by meaning, 
and by analogy and by correlation is, is a very powerful thing. It's used for shopping recommendation and legal discovery and anomaly detection in financial data and fraud detection and spam filtering and a million different platforms that require this foundational layer, this like component, right? So it happens that to do what's called RAG, retrieval augmented generation, that became sort of like a necessary component. So now when you have a foundational model answering questions, hopefully factual questions that you care so much about the organization data in a workplace and things being accessible and, and being data-driven, right? If you as a company have a lot of data in, internally, whether it be legal documents or, or reports or historical accounts and so on, and you want to converse intelligently inside your company, the ability to go and fetch relevant information in real time and for the foundational model to actually respond intelligently with data, that is a necessary component. So you have to put all your data somewhere and search through it, get the text or the charts or the images, right? And use them what's called as context for the answer in, in the data. I mean, you've been around for five years. Is that right. correct? Pinecone has been around for five yeah. years. But the growth, I, as I've understood it, and this may be incorrect, you can tell me that this is wrong, over the last two has been sort of stratospheric. Correct. I it, mean, we only launched our product two years ago. And so before that, we had no, no growth. So, but yeah, beginning of 22 is when we launched our paid product for the first time. And you're right. I mean, 22 was a high growth year and 23 was like a, just a, an anomaly, just complete explosion. Basically, what people experienced with ChatGPT and agents and co-pilots and so on. We've been powering a lot of that wave. And so, yeah, we started off being a uh, fairly well-known secret to being like a well-known brand and a company that's just in, in the eye of the storm. Yeah, which is the proverbial tornado in, in Jeff Moore terms. Yes. And so where do you find the use cases are, which use cases have taken off most you mentioned a variety. Which ones have been most transformational? How often are you being used in, in conjunction with LLMs or how often are you otherwise doing more traditional semantic search? No, even, even semantic search is being done with LLMs. I mean, this is, we're very tightly coupled with the model providers and that's why we'll partner with pretty much all of them. Yep. Okay. Semantic search was in some sense, a holy grail for 30 years, right? The, the whole academic conferences with thousands of publications on information retrieval, starting from the, literally from the 70s and 80s, the ability to actually process text and get it to a form on which semantic search actually works, that's the new thing, right? The ability to take models and really convert text into these vectors and those vectors being extremely good semantic representation of the content. That's new. And the other thing that is new is the existence of tools like Pinecone and specifically our recent launch of the serverless architecture, which allows you to really ingress billions and billions of, of these vectors, each one of them, maybe every sentence or paragraph embedded multiple times and so on, right? The ability to have huge amounts of data and to search very effectively and on, on a budget now makes this extremely powerful. In the same way that foundational models graduated and vector databases graduated, and now we've got like really strong foundations on both sides. Now you can put 
these systems on steroids and companies like Notion and Gong and many others that are built question answering and knowledge discovery and so on for their own tens of thousands of, of uh, customers sometimes, right? That's possible today, which was not possible even like two or three years ago. Yeah, I mean, you but you founded the company obviously five years ago and right. prior to all of what we've seen over the last two years, and did you imagine the sophistication of these models or did you have a sense that this was coming or? The answer is yes. No, I mean, look, the timing and the intensity, I think nobody could foresee. Okay. The direction and the capability, I think the writing was on the wall, probably from 2017-ish. There was a huge sea change in how we do uh, natural language processing. It became a lot more deep learning heavy. Transformer models became significantly better. GANs, as they use like the adversarial networks and generation started being a thing. You could start seeing cracks in in the armor that that you could see okay this thing is this thing is starting to break okay we, we're starting to really see some transformation here 2018 i think bert came out vector search started becoming a lot more talked about and in and by normal engineers and not by just ai enthusiasts so you could see the sea change starting to happen of course back then it was a very few people knew about it but the change was happening and today, as you see the space evolving, as you see vector databases moving forward, these models are fed so much information. They are so yeah. large in terms of I mean, their requirements of compute and the amount of data over which they are built. How do you see the evolution of the space moving forward? Is it simply a matter of scale? I mean, scale is not simple, but is that where the giant sucking sound lives or are there other problems that are of interest? No, there are many, many problems of interest. So there, there is, I'll abstract away from models versus vector databases and so on. I want to kind of pop out one level above and say, we as a community need to learn how to reason and think, right? We need to teach our machines how to reason and think and talk and read. <laughs> so this is the intelligence. And we need to teach them how to know and remember and recall relevant stuff, right? Which is the capacity of knowing and remembering, right? Um, we are much more focused on the latter, right? You know, we work with a lot of legal discovery companies. They say, hey, we have millions of contracts, right? When somebody asks a question, they need to take into account having read hundreds of thousands of contracts. The LLM, you're not going to be able to train an LLM to know it. And that also that knowledge changes all the time. Same thing happens for support and JIRA tickets and other support issues and, and medical histories and company wikis and you name it, like everything in the company. You want your foundational models, your agents, code and so on to know, right? So the question is, what does it mean to know something? To know something is to be able to digest it somehow to make the connections. And when I ask you something about it to figure out, oh, what's relevant and I'll, I'll I know how to bring the right information to bear so that I can reason about it. So this ping pong between reasoning and retrieving the right knowledge, right, is what we need to get back at, good to get good at. And I think that is, if you ask what's the next step, is those three things. It's how do we get knowledge to be extremely good, how do we get reasoning to be extremely good, and how we connect them in the optimal way. And we're making big strides on all three. 
Yeah, and this to your point and the point that you've made, these models are extraordinarily good at broadly resemblance right. and, and some level of pattern recognition over vast amounts of information. And obviously those vast amounts of information are stored largely inside of you know the models or whatever information it's been trained on. Inside the vector this, database, to me. Inside the vector database, that's right. Yeah. But what humans do really well is on some level, I mean, you mentioned that facial, facial recognition pattern. There's almost another class of sort of abstraction that humans seem like they're capable of where when you get to that models may not be good about. They may not be, they may not always have that capability of abstraction. And so this like, seems like this interplay of like teaching a model to reason or teaching the model to be better as it were is in some sense training it to, to know when to reference which stores of knowledge and how to think about when to figure out what the appropriate answer is. Is that what people mean in, se- in some sense by, I mean, there's prompt engineering, which is obviously feeding it, feeding the model as it were good responses and potentially good answers. But do you see a world evolving where maybe a language model is taught to talk to multiple stores, is, t- is ta- taught to sort of be able to know when to go to one specific domain, specific model, b- model versus another? How do you see that evolving? We're talking about only the most basic interaction, right? Kind of an atomic unit of like a model and, and one not store. Agents are becoming a thing where you take one prompt or one mission or one one task and you break it to a sequence of 10 different things and you go and execute one after the other and the steps might rely on, on one another and you might access multiple stores and multiple tools and so on. All of this is, is happening. I mean, there's an infinite complexity that you can go uh, and build. And this is why we build foundational tools. Right. We build a very unopinionated tool because remembering images and code and text and audio snippets for a vector database, it's the same. Like we, our job is to make it bigger, cheaper, easier, faster, and more secure. Right. That's it. Yeah. We, yeah. we, we try to very consciously stay in our swim lane because even that is extremely hard. Right. I, I can tell you how much we improved. Okay. This is just put things in perspective. We had a customer two years ago. There was an annual contract of $200,000 a year. After a while, we, our system got so good that I had to go back to them and say, I don't know how to tell you this, but your workload now fits on our free tier, right? We would still love for you to stick around, <laughs> but you don't have to keep paying us if you, don't, if you really don't want to, right? That is how much the system has improved. That's how much dramatic, how dramatic the cost deduction has been, right? And so... Yeah, I mean, we try to improve that part, but the whole system could get, of course, infinitely complex. You can have multiple vector databases, multiple knowledge stores, multiple foundation models, and the logic above it, it orchestrates everything as, as an agent to do, I don't know, 20 different tasks one after the other while you're off one prompt. Sure. Yeah. And your background, I mean, interestingly, of course, is I believe it's an AI, which is, you know, uh, very much a mathematical, at least at its fundamental core, it seems like a mathematical yeah. discipline. Yeah. But here we have you developing, you know, a form of a database, which is obviously highly correlated with sort of systems development and computer engineering. So in some sense, you're building something for the people that you were, you've been trained as. How has that transition been for you? I mean, you're, you're operating at low levels of the stack. I mean, has that been a fun transition? Do you find yourself migrating back to some of the problem spaces that are above what has been represented and processed? in your systems? So it has, actually hasn't been a very sharp transition for me because I, I am, I'm older than I look. I started my PhD in 2005, roughly. I might be off by a year. Okay. Back then, you couldn't even build on whatever TensorFlow or PyTorch. Like There was nothing. You had to build everything from scratch all the time. Right? 
And none of the tools that we know today, definitely like using GPUs was today is like very well understood. Back then it was a novelty, right? And so you basically had to build everything they use, build all the tools that you need to actually go build something. So tool building was a in, was an essential part of doing machine learning. You've experienced it yourself, right? This is, again, today, data catalogs and data and distributed, whatever, distributed data stores and so on. I went understood tools, but you had to build it yourself. Like, if you wanted to do it, you had to build it, right? And so for me, again, this is not a big change. I just really enjoyed the tool building. I really enjoyed the platform building. That's what I stayed because I love that. There's something very clean about it, something very measurable, accurate, and disciplined about it. And I, I enjoy that that part of the, the stack. Yeah, it's it. I mean, it's like the early days. Of, I mean, what you describe is essentially if you remember the early days of the internet. Back then, it was called an application service provider would have to essentially host their own servers because there was no AWS. What are the class of people? I mean, th this is obviously a massively sexy space, massive market potential. Lots of folks are coming after you. And, you know, I get this sort of, I remember early on when we were finding Alation, I'd get a lot of like, ah, is this a feature of something else? Is this something that is going to be encapsulated by something bigger? How do you think about that? Do you think about, about this as being sort of mainstreamed into something larger? How do you think about the space evolving? And how do you think about differentiation unfolding over time? Yeah. So... Look, I mean, one of the most exciting moments for me before starting Pinecone was the realization that this is truly a new kind of database. If this is not some tweak or some flavor of something else, this is not something you can bolt on a document store or a NoSQL engine or a SQL engine or a OLAP system or whatever. A, warehouse or a data lake. These things are extremely specialized, okay, in their data access, in the data layout, in the query execution logic, and so on. And when I understood that what you need to be able to actually build a vector database that's actually very efficient, very scalable, can actually operate with the performance and the cost scale trade-offs that people need to actually run big applications, you needed something that's foundation new. That was one of the most exciting parts and one of the kind of the, one of the crystallizing moments where I said, okay, we have to do this. Like this is a privilege. The ability to actually build a new kind of database is, I think, it doesn't come up very often. I mean, it only comes up, it only happened in history, I don't know, like 10 times. And so the privilege to carry that torch is for me, it was unavoidable almost, right? And so that is my answer in some sense. Like we, we believe and we have all the evidence to show this fundamentally a new thing. I'll, just to give you an example. As an experiment, we loaded the internet into Pinecone on an index. So we took to count, crawl, vectorize it, put it into Pinecone and asked, basically used the internet as a base for RAG, for factual questions with, with models. Interestingly enough, by the way, it cut... Uh, hallucinations on GPT-4 by half and improved all foundational models, including Mistral and Llama. And, and the interesting thing is to be able to do that efficiently and for this to thing to be, to only take a, a handful of days and actually not even be that expensive, the only way to do that is to build something that's actually extremely good at this, right? Mm -hmm. And if we try to do this with any like NoSQL engine that like salt and pepper vectors or over everything or some data lake or whatever, 
it would just either not work at all or just be com- just, just nauseatingly expensive. And which is what we see. I mean, people come to us and say, hey, we try to do this on XYZ as advertised by them and the whole thing broke down. Oh, we figured out we're going to spend $3 million this year on this thing. Like, okay, we need to find something else. Yeah, because I mean, on some level, these models are operating at a level of abstraction that the other databases are simply incapable of representing in any reasonably scalable way. You mentioned this idea that the performance of the underlying retrieval improved. Can you give us a little bit more of a sense for, so why did that happen? Like, what was the innovation there? So if you remember, we we talked about both the retrieval and the reasoning. Okay. In the retrieval itself, there's a lot of logic. It's how, what embedding you choose, how you search through them accurately, how many results you bring back, how do you then re-rank them? What do you do with the results that come back? How you figure out what's relevant or not? There are many permutations and variants of how you do retrieval and how you bring back the best results, right? Interestingly enough, improving, significantly improving over all the public foundational models on factual questions was surprisingly not hard, right? This is, this kind of shows you kind of the, the power of this paradigm, right? Of course, we can do a lot better. I'm not saying we're nearly done, right? But the fact that this, when running this on Pinecone took a few days and whatever, a few thousand dollars worth of compute is nothing short of a miracle because training those LLMs is a massive, like multi-year, multi-million dollar effort. One of the things that I think certainly it's hard for me to understand is we don't know, I guess, how these models represent information, like what the numbers actually represent and what they mean. And when a model is retrieving information, like how there's a mapping between sort of humanly understood comments, concepts, and the numbers. Do you think that there will be a time where we'll be able to explain what's going on? No. <laughs> we can get philosophical here, but 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 the short answer is we are, as a trend, we're moving away from understanding it deeper, not moving towards understanding. Say more. Networks are getting deeper, bigger. Connections become more complex. We train on more data. And frankly, we start understanding these systems as complex systems. You know, it's like we measure them in in aggregate. We don't understand the, the behavior, right? You can measure you know, the angle of the sand in a dune, right, without knowing where each sand kernel is, right? Uh, that is an aggregate phenomena. You can measure, you can say something about the behavior in, of an ant colony without understanding what each ant wants or does, right? And so on. I mean, these complex systems have emergent behaviors that you can study as a topic or as a system without truly being able to characterize each one of the components, right? And that's how we study neural nets now, right? In fact, we study them on two ends. You know, it's like you have old timers like me who truly care about how do you propagate gradients correctly and how you compute, like this is the very low level of literally how you should make one step in, in learning from one layer to the next, right? And we obsess about doing that exactly right. But then we you put three layers and we have no idea what's happening, right? This is already like way too complex. There's no way to actually characterize what's happening. But suddenly at hundreds of layers and billions of parameters, the emerging behavior is already starting to be 
predictive enough that you can start measuring it again and start reasoning about what this thing should be doing, even though we don't really understand the compliance. Yeah. So you test the behaviors from the outside as opposed to sort of really understanding what's going on inside the black box, as it were. Yeah. But these models are hypersensitive. I mean, but very small changes in inputs can yield dramatically different outputs or... It, It has to. But it mathematically has to. I mean, this is this is something that I keep telling people, and I think they don't want to listen. But it's reality. I mean, because they want to know that there's an immutable response. Is that why they don't want to listen? Yeah. So, so kind of let's break it down to the math. I mean, this is where the ma- being a mathematician really helps, right? Not that like mathematicians would be offended that I said that. I'm not a like mathematicians wouldn't count me in their club, but. That's okay. Folks like you wouldn't count me in your club. So uh, there, there are many a, clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. But you have, look, the input for those models are oftentimes, let's say, a thousand dimensional vector, which is a thousand numbers, right? And let's say the output is like one number, say, what else? So say classification or some, you're just trying to output like one item. Forget about a whole sentence or an essay or writing a job description. Just like output just one number between like yes and no. And anything in between, right? So now it doesn't matter how you slice and dice the network. Could be one neuron, and it could be a billion neurons, right? This thing is a function. It takes a thousand numbers and it outputs one number, right? And so now that you can think about this thing as one big complex function, and you can ask yourself: this multidimensional function it takes a thousand numbers and outputs one number, it takes a vector and outputs a number, right? How smooth can it be? And the answer is, if it's not effectively constant, basically, if it doesn't always output roughly the same number, say 0.5, like, I don't know, right? If it needs to be consistently saying yes and no about a bunch of stuff and be somehow informative, then it needs to be extremely sharp, sharply chained, right? It has to be, right? And again, I don't want to jump into the math of why that happens. These are like deep theorems in uh, isoparametric inequalities, uh, but believe me that it's mathematically impossible. So you, the function has to be sharp in the sense that you have to be able to, the, there will be many places in which you vary the input a little bit and the output varies dramatically. Right? Yeah. And we have to get used to that because that's not going to change. I mean, this is mathematically impossible to fix. Which is a fundamental characteristic of complexity that small changes have potentially massively different implications for the output. And you think about that as being brittle or being unsecure or being unsafe. And I see why people are uncomfortable with it. And in some sense, that's an inherent behavior of of these large networks. I know at Anthropic, there's this researcher that's working on AI explainability that are maybe a little bit more optimistic than you. Do you have a sense for the case that they would make in terms of how far we'll be able to get? Or do you think it's fundamentally a question of just simply describing the library of sort of external tests well enough to be able to know how consistent the output would happen to be? So I can tell you what I think about explainability and what we are very much, again, we, we're trying to represent knowledge and some, some level of sanity <laughs> for a lot of companies when using LLMs. And maybe what I said before would just cause alarm and despair. Oh, we can never fix this. What I think about explainability is giving enough evidence to support your claims, right? 
you don't have to be always right. You don't, I mean, this, you're bound to sometimes be wrong. I mean, this, we're never going to make AI perfect. We're not going to make natural intelligence perfect, let alone artificial intelligence, right? But if you're generating text in an answer, you can say, hey, this is the answer to your question. And by the way, the answer that you got, I, I got this information from these five documents that are in your company's you know, stash of data, whatever that might be, right? And you can go and verify that like what I said here matches that, okay? And if you can, great. And if you can't, then that's a problem. Today, we can do that. In fact, if you look at Notion, it's one of the leading companies in organizing company data and, and, and being kind of this like collaborative platform, they now build a Q&A feature on top of Pinecone that allows you to do exactly that, right? So you get an answer when you query your own data and you get an answer. It's not just an answer. It's an answer with the citations and the actual proof that this is the right thing. Not that it's never wrong, but it's significantly better. So for me, that's a practical, reasonable way to get comfortable and confidence in the answers, even though you know it's never going to be perfect. Even the most sort of bulletproof or branded studies and the most um, bulletproof journals, you know, essentially rely upon a similar method. I mean, you have reasoning that are, that is outlined in a paper, but ultimately it's referencing prior work, data, and insights. And so on some level, that's what you expect of a human. You're not asking the human to tell you which neuron touched another neuron in order, or or fired another neuron in order to be able to get to an answer or cause words to be spoken. Correct. Uh, Correct. Exactly. If you have a paralegal writing a document, you don't say exactly how did your brain work when you wrote this? You, you ask them what what sources. And yet this is all like very scary to, I mean, many people and people are, you know, thinking of regulating this stuff and there's like all of sorts of initiatives and proposed regulations. How do you see that unfolding? I mean, people must ask you this question all the time in terms of your being one of the foremost experts and at the forefront of all of this. I mean, how do you think the world ought to be contending with this. Is there a place for regulation? Is there a place for more oversight? For sure, there is place for regulation. We know that this technology can be abused in many ways, and it probably already, I know for a fact, it already is being abused in all sorts of ways. That said, I am concerned when regulation specifies how a technology can be used rather than what it can be used for, right? And that, that part scares me because we, we don't know how half of these things work they, they move at the speed of whatever, like every quarter, the technology changes. We understand new things, literally every quarter, a few months, is not enough to pass any legislation. Mm-hmm. So that whatever regulation we have, it's going to be two, three, four years behind what's actually happening. And in the pace of innovation in AI, that just completely obsolete, right? Even if we do something brilliant today, right? If we trust our politicians and, and legislators to be absolutely brilliant and knowledgeable and scrupulous and honest and good, well-intending. Okay. Even when all those are in place, in three years, what they have set in motion today would be completely just crippling in all sorts of unreasonable and unintended, right? I, I'd rather see a regulation says, okay, what kinds of things we don't want to see? Then we'll just make sure as technologists to not step outside of those bounds. Yeah, which, I mean, obviously applies to good actors. And then the question is like, how do the bad actors deal with this? Like everything illegal, I mean, doing illegal stuff is illegal. <laughs> you go to jail for it. Regulation never stops uh, anybody who doesn't want to follow regulations. That's right. That's right. 
This has been uh, a phenomenal conversation, and I appreciate your patience with what are probably some very basic questions. This has been a lot of fun, and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, man. Thank you. The rapid progress in AI technology has fueled the evolution of new tools and platforms. One such tool is vector search. If the function of AI is to reason and think, the key to achieving this is not just in processing data, but also in understanding the relationships among data. Vector databases provide AI systems with the ability to explore these relationships, draw similarities, and make logical conclusions. Ito remains optimistic about the future where knowledge can be accessed at any time. He is certain that models will become increasingly complex, but also more efficient and adept at managing intricate computations. And it's clear that understanding and harnessing the power of vector databases will have a transformative impact on the future of AI. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Ito, for joining today. Our next episode will be the last of the season, featuring none other than the inspiration for the theme and title of this podcast, Saul Alinsky. Thanks to ChatGPT, we're able to end the season with a special GPT-infused interview that explores Saul's most famous work, Rules for Radicals. Published in 1971, the book provides guidelines for social activism and focuses on strategies for bringing people together and inspiring them to strive for a shared objective. I'm Satin Sangani, CEO of Alation. Data Radicals, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Subscribe to our Radicals Rundown newsletter. You'll get monthly updates on hot jobs worth exploring, news we're following, and books we love. Connect with past guests and the wider Data Radicals community. Go to alation.com slash podcast and enter your email to join the list. We can't wait to connect.